stall for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Pejas, they, told, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul from the, away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We take effort to print up the order of worship every week, and I want to encourage you to take it home and use it during the week. But part of it that isn't printed that you heard already is when Dan kept saying in the absolution of sins, because of Jesus, because of Jesus, because of Jesus. And what I want to remind you, even as we come to listen to this word, that the word that is proclaimed is a word of grace because of Jesus. We read this morning a prophecy that said that a day would come when 10 non-believers would grab the hem of a believer and say, take me to your God because I have heard that he is with you. Well, Merry Christmas is about God being with us, Emmanuel. And we even now pray because of Jesus. Jesus, our great high priest, who opened the throne room of heaven and invites us to come to him to receive the grace and the mercy to help us in our time of need. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we confess that this is a time of need for us. Father, We've already had conversations this morning about how the chaos in the world is creating in us anxiety. We know how it divides us. We've experienced it as our families have been together over the holidays and we have differing opinions and differing solutions. We sense it in our own lives, in our own hearts when all those things we confessed in the, the declaration of confession are, are true. Father, we, we are professional at manipulating. But Father, we come before you 
And being in your presence reminds us that we cannot manipulate you. And as your word is read, you have promised that you will not manipulate us. And you have promised truth. Lord Jesus, we have celebrated you in this Advent season as the light of the world. And we ask you, would you now send your spirit to illuminate our hearts with the truth of your word? Father, I'm thankful for so many of the songs that we sing that cause us to stop because we don't use the language day in and day out. But Lord Jesus, we do ask you, as we have already sung, would you please pilot us? Would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you reveal yourself to us by the power of your spirit so that we, as women and men, from whatever background into this place we come, that you would be made great before us. And that we, who are created in your image, would be changed more and more to your likeness. We're dependent on you. And so we thank you and praise you for what you've promised to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we look at this passage today. And uh, we're moving back into Luke. I, we're, back into Acts, rather. I wonder if you all remember being in Acts last spring. It was fun to hear Nathan remind us that a new year is a time to look back and to remember all that God has been faithful in doing in our lives. And last spring, we were in the book of Acts, and we, we studied the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts and really saw how God, through the power of his Spirit, continued his acts on the earth by using his disciples. Remember, we had the short lingo of saying it's not just the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Rather, it's the Acts of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, right? That what we see in the book of Acts is Jesus continuing to work. Remember that Luke writes the book of Acts, and he writes it to his friend Theophilus. Theophilus, who is a non-Jew, who would have been familiar with the Old Testament through what's called the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And Luke says, I'm writing you these things, he says it in the very first chapter of Luke, so that you would have an accurate account of everything that's happened. And then in the first chapter of Acts, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you might have confidence in what you've already heard. So the whole book of Acts is written so that we might have our faith encouraged. Nathan calls me during the week and he says, what are you going to preach on? And this week he called me and said, man, I read this text. What in the world are you going to preach on? What is here? What, what do you see and how do you apply it to us? And I want you to see three things. In this beginning of the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, as the church obediently sends out one of its best prophets and teachers, the Apostle Paul, along with him, Barnabas, I want you to see that God's people and His church are dependent on the Holy Spirit for preparation. That's the first thing, for preparation. The second thing is that God's people and His church are dependent on the Holy Spirit for direction. And then the third thing is that God's people and His church are dependent on the Holy Spirit for action. God's people and His church are dependent on the Holy Spirit for action. You go, man, I don't know if I can see that out of this. 
I think that you can. There is something central to this passage, and it has to do with intelligence. I don't know if it struck you as I read it. But Luke says of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, that he was an intelligent man. That word intelligence is where we get our word to synthesize. I asked one of you in the past couple of weeks, why do you call this individual such a smart, intelligent person? And your answer to me was, because they are able to take a lot of information from disparate sources, bring it together, synthesize it, and then respond or act in a productive or an effective manner. And I want you to think for a minute, as we look at these three areas of dependence, how we might synthesize them. So look at the first one with me. It's simply this, the church is dependent on the Holy Spirit for preparation. I'm going to get that out of the first three verses, all right? It describes the prophets and the teachers who were present in Antioch. It describes these five guys, the multiplicity of leaders. We see that Barnabas is there, and we know already from Acts that he's from Cyprus, the island that exists just off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea from Antioch, right? We also see Simeon, whose name is Niger. Simeon is a Roman man who is also from Africa. He's a black man. Lucius is from Cyrene, which is part of North Africa today, Libya. And then we see Menaean, one who knew Herod, the Tetrarch, King Herod, the King Herod who sought to kill Jesus, right? And we see Menaean there, and then we see Saul. We see in verse 9 that it's Saul who is also called Paul. And if you remember, Saul, his Jewish name is also called Paul because he's a Roman citizen. And so from this point forward, we see from verse 9 forward that Paul is who we hear about, but his name is Saul also. We see these guys who have come together in Antioch. Remember, Antioch exists north of Jerusalem, probably 150 miles or, or better up the Mediterranean coast. It is a huge city of commerce in the ancient Roman world. It's close to Tarshish, which is where Paul was from. Barnabas had been sent there from Jerusalem to witness what had happened when non-Jews had come to faith. He was so encouraged by what had happened in chapter 11 that he immediately went out and found Saul in Tarshish and said, you're the man. You're both Jewish and you're Roman. Come and lead these people. And so Barnabas and Saul had been with them for almost a year, it says in chapter 11. And then it says in the end of 11 that prophets had come up into Antioch and had said there's going to be a great famine. And so the church in Antioch wanted to send a gift to the believers in Jerusalem. And so they gathered their money and they sent Paul and Barnabas off. And they said, take this money to Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 11, you see Paul and Barnabas leaving Antioch. Chapter 12, if you remember, has to do with Peter being imprisoned and James being murdered by King Herod, the friend of Menaean. And then we pick up the text here. We have multiple leadership as Paul and Silas, excuse me, as Paul and Barnabas, as Saul and Barnabas return 
to Antioch, we see the diversity of what God has brought about in this great city. Something that ought to make all of our hearts long for and to desire that picture, that full picture of the kingdom of people from every tongue and tribe and nation and people. Not all of them represented here in Antioch, but, but a great diversity nonetheless. And Paul and, and, and Barnabas come back. And it's almost as if they said, what's next? What's next is what they said. What's interesting is that we see these five guys doing two different things. It says that they were worshiping and fasting. It's my conviction that, that these five were the ones who were worshiping and fasting because Luke uses a word that he doesn't use for the typical worship of the church here. He uses a word that would be straight out of the Septuagint that Theophilus would have recognized. Remember, the Greek Old Testament that was like the priestly actions in worship to God. And so the pictures that we get is that these five prophets and teachers continued to lead the church, but all the while they fasted. They demonstrated, Lord, we're waiting for you to tell us what's next in a position of dependence. And in verse 2, we see that the Holy Spirit answers. Verse 2 says this, while they were worshiping and, and fa- and the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and I think it's fair to say these are five prophets and teachers gathered together, more than likely he spoke through at least one of them and maybe more of them. And he said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. We see the Holy Spirit speak and speak through his people who are depending on him. That's what this fasting is an example of, a physical dependence and saying, God, the, the, the life that I need is not through my food. It is through you. What is next? And it says very overtly that the Spirit spoke. He spoke specifically, set apart Saul and Barnabas for me. And then he spoke personally for the work that I have for them to do. This was a huge day for the church in Antioch. And then look at verse 3. It says this in verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It doesn't say worshiping the Lord and fasting now. It says then after fasting and praying, the activities of the church who came alongside their leadership, who who had heard what the leadership intended to do, and, and more than likely the leadership said, we want you to fast and pray with us. And and ask the Lord to continue to work and to continue to speak and to continue to direct. And it seems implied by the language that the entire church is the one who waited, even though the Holy Spirit had already spoken, allowing the Holy Spirit to work on their hearts to encourage them with joy and excitement that this is what was next. In fact, one of the things that encourages me to believe this is that when they come back from this first missionary journey in chapter 14, they come back and they report to the whole church what they have done, not just to the elders, but to the whole church. You're the one who sent us. Now we want to tell you this is what happened, right? And what we see in this preparation is that God prepares his leaders, his people, and his church for his work as they depend on him. 
That's the centrality of this fasting here. And that's the first thing that we see. The second thing that we see in these verses are verses 4 through 6. The next time that the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And what we see is this. That God's people and His church are dependent on the Holy Spirit for their direction. That's the second thing that we see here. Read it with me. So being sent out, and you would think by the church. The church sent them out, right? But that's not what we read in verse 4. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of the Lord in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. The interesting thing is, we see that the people of God in here, Saul and Barnabas, along with John, and you want to read who John is, look back at chapter 12. This is John Mark. His mother was Mary, uh, one of the women who would host the early church in her house. But these folks were being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know how they decided to go where they went. We don't know if the Holy Spirit said, I want you to go to Cyprus. We're not told that. And in fact, this is one of those places where you wonder, did they just say, Lord, we're going to go and we pray that you would guide us. Uh, Paul or Saul, where do you want to go? Barnabas, where do you want to go? It's interesting that they went to Barnabas's island. They went to where Barnabas was from. They sailed to the eastern shore of the island, which would have been the closest portion of that island. And when they arrived there, they did the things that they normally would have done. They went and sought out the synagogues. And in the synagogues, they began to proclaim who Jesus was. They began to pattern their day after what they would normally have done. They crossed the island of Cyprus, which I'm convinced that the Petrides could tell us much more about the island of Cyprus than I could ever tell you about the island of Cyprus. But it's roughly more or less 100 miles wide between the two cities that are referenced here, one on the east coast of Cyprus and one on the west coast of Cyprus. And they crossed this island, stopping in the synagogues and proclaiming the word of God as they went. But verse 6 tells us something interesting. It says, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Pehas, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now again, we miss this because we read this in English. But Theophilus would have caught this idea that they came upon a certain magician. They found, might be a better way of saying that, they, they, they discovered. But what's interesting is that this word is loaded for the gospel of Luke and for the book of Acts. It's the junction that happens in the reality of history. They really did come along a prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. But the junction of history where the divine appointments are made. Listen to these other places in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts where this word is used. In Luke 1, we hear that Mary found favor with God. In chapter 9, we say that Jesus, we read that Jesus was found alone on the Mount of Transfiguration when 
when the Shekinah cloud of God's glory had descended on him. In chapter 24, as the disciples ran to the tomb, they found that the stone was rolled away. And in Acts, this same word is used in the description of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira and even what happens with Philip in chapter 8. This idea that they came upon, Luke is communicating, was no accident. And what I want us to see in that is that God's people and his church are dependent on the Holy Spirit for direction, even what they would do and where they would go. But the last thing that I want us to see is that God's people and the church are dependent on the Holy Spirit for action. That's what I want you to see. And it starts here in, chap- in verse 7, right? In verse 7, we see that this false prophet, this magician, his name was Bar-Jesus. And remember, Bar means son of. Jesus is, 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 the, is the Greek way of saying Joshua, right? And so we say Bar-Joshua may have been another way of saying her name, son of Joshua, and he was with the proconsul. The proconsul was, was a Roman authority overseen by the Senate of Rome. And he was in charge of the entire island of Cyprus. So the picture that we get is that we have a false prophet, a Jewish man who claimed to be a prophet of God, who was not a prophet of God, alongside this Roman official. Now it's likely that the Roman official would bring people who represented all of the people under his control so that he would understand what's going on, so that he would have the intelligence to know how to govern and to rule. And in fact, Luke wants to point out to us a specific thing. He says that this Sergius Paulus, in verse 7, was a man of intelligence. Again, that word is the word where we get our word, the ability to synthesize things, to put disparate things together and to understand them, right? So you have Sergius Paulus, and he has heard that Paul and Barnabas, that Saul and Barnabas have been traveling through his island proclaiming God's word. Everywhere else we see Paul and, Cyrus, Paul and Barnabas do this, we know that commotion Starts, and we'll see more of that as we read on in this missionary journey. So you would imagine that this commotion came up to him and he goes, I want to hear from them. It's the first Greek that we hear of in the scripture, the first non-Jew that we hear of in the scripture who's not even a God-fearer, who says, I want to hear what they have to say. And so he summons them to him. And as Paul and Barnabas begin to speak, Bar-Jesus or Eliamus, which is his other name, again, a a Hebrew name and a Greek name, begins to oppose them, begins to argue with them, begins to say, no, that's not exactly true what they're saying. And the tension of verse 8 arises. So you see the picture. You've got got the proconsul sitting there saying, I want to hear what these guys are doing. Saul and Barnabas have been brought in. Saul, who is also known as Paul, have been brought in. And Bar-Jesus, the false prophet, is arguing, saying there's no way that that's true. That's not true. This isn't the way that it is. And suddenly we reread verse 9. Listen to what it says. But Saul, who was called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, and then said, 
you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Verse 9 is the third time you see the work of the Holy Spirit in this passage. And here we see that even Paul was dependent on the Holy Spirit for action. He was dependent on the Holy Spirit for action. We know that he is speaking truth into Bar-Jesus' life. When Luke says that he looked intently at him, this is the same thing that happened when uh, the disciples were on their way to the temple and the, the lame man was, uh, was waiting outside the temple and they said he was crying out to them and they looked at him intently and they said, silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have we're going to give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And suddenly Paul prophesies, right? Paul names him for who he is. One who is making the paths of God that are straight, crooked. He's perverting them. More than likely, Barjona didn't want the proconsul to hear about Jesus because he saw his own job in jeopardy. He saw the likelihood of his employment with that proconsul ended if the proconsul really believed the gospel that Paul was proclaiming. And we see that Paul calls him out for who he is, and then he prophesies that the Lord's hand is about to be upon him and he's going to be blinded. It was interesting as I read this week that one commentator actually said, isn't it interesting that the apostle Paul, who when he was Saul and thought that he was glorifying God in persecuting the church, was also blinded and only in that dependent state of blindness did he then cry out to God. And you wonder here how much Saul is thinking in his mind, if there's any hope for you, Bar-Jesus, you need to know that you're blind and what you're saying isn't the truth and you will be found out. And the result of all of this this dependence that Saul demonstrates on the Holy Spirit, even to have action, we see in verse 12, that then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What do we see? We see that the proconsul saw he synthesized with his intelligence the power that was at work in the miraculous act that Paul prophesied what was going to happen. Paul never claimed to have made Bar-Jesus blind, but he said the hand of the Lord will be upon you and you will be blinded for a time. And then he joined that with the teaching of the Lord, with the word of the gospel that Paul proclaimed. We've already seen what Peter proclaimed as the gospel in chapters 2 and chapters 4. And we begin to believe what the Apostle Paul is going to proclaim about who Jesus was, the Son of God, who came and died for our sins. And because in his perfect life, his death meant that death was defeated, that he was raised again and seated at the right hand of the Father. And from there would come to judge the living and the dead. And the proconsul heard that testimony of Paul. And when he joined that with the power that he saw, his intelligence and his ability to synthesize, 
made it clear to him that this was something that should astonish him. You know, there are a couple of other places where we see this type of astonishment in Luke. One of them is when the people who meet Jesus, when he is a boy in the temple, are astonished at his understanding, his ability to synthesize. And then Luke also tells us that when they hear Jesus speak in Luke 4, they're astonished. And here, the proconsul has the same result. He is astonished and he believes. How are we to synthesize and understand this passage? In one sense, this passage has everything to do with Luke proclaiming that as the apostles were sent out by Jesus and by their hands came the preaching of God's word with the power of miracles, so too Paul is is verified, his authority is verified by the miracle that happened in his presence and also by the teaching of his word. That's certainly what's happening. But what's interesting is that Luke never wastes any words. And he talked about how this proconsul was intelligent, how he had the ability to synthesize, and how he had the ability to synthesize the things that he saw, the ability to discern. And specifically, Luke mentions the ways of the Lord. In fact, he claims that Bar-Jesus has taken and made crooked or perverted the ways of the Lord. There is... In the Old Testament, a passage out of Hosea that reads like this. Whoever is wise, let him understand. And the same word is there, synthesize these things. Whoever is discerning, and again, it's the same word, who has the ability to synthesize, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are straight. Well, it's really interesting that no fewer than three times in this passage are words from that passage brought out. What do we get from that? How are we to understand it? How are we to synthesize it? Well, Sergius Paulus is an interesting person, isn't he? He's a Roman. He's an authority. He doesn't fear God. He has a false prophet in his presence because he's a magician. He thinks that, you know, you could probably make things happen just by, by conjuring it up. But the interesting thing is, is that he looks and he asks the question, what are these people saying? I want them to come. I want you to think about this from a place of unbelief, if that's where you are today. And maybe you are like my friend to whom I gave the gospel of Mark, and you read it, and you go, you know something, I could never believe this. I want you to hear, as humbly as I can tell you, that's not true. It's not true that you couldn't believe this. Because this Roman official who was intelligent, had the ability to synthesize, heard the truth that Paul spoke about humanity, about the love of God, about the person of Jesus. And when he looked out at his world, he said that made sense. Steph sent me an article that Tim Keller had, had ha- uh, where Tim Keller was referenced in the Atlantic Monthly. It came out, I think, December. It might have been as old as November now, where the journalist asked him, what do you do about this idea that faith is a gift? And he said, yes, faith is a gift, but that doesn't mean you're passive in that gift. You're called to use your reason. 
to cause you use your intellect to engage it, to synthesize these things, to look at what is around you. And Keller points out, again humbly, to you who might say, I don't believe in Jesus, you already put your faith in something. Does it as rightly construct the world around you as the gospel does? Well, what does it do for us as believers? How are we supposed to understand this? How do we synthesize this? Believers, remember this, that you and that we, singularly and corporately, are dependent on the Holy Spirit for preparation of what God has in store for us to do. That's a great message for the new year, right? What is the new year going to bring in our lives? And you go, I I don't know. And maybe what you ought to do is go to Dan and Aaron and Jeff and me and go, are you guys fasting? As you lead this church, are are you fasting and asking the Lord, what's the next thing to do? Are, Are we even asking that question as a church? Because we're dependent on God for preparation, but we're also dependent on God for direction. You notice that that Paul and Cyrus were obedient in what they did, but they had to wait on God until they came upon. Again, this language that they knew. And even then, they were dependent on the Holy Spirit for action. That's one way that we synthesize this. But I think it's also foolish for us to not see Bar-Jesus versus Saul in this. Because there's one other place where it talks about the ways of the Lord and making the ways of the Lord crooked. And it's the Proverbs. Proverbs 10 says this, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Christian, why are you here? I don't mean here in church today. I mean, why are you here? in the communities that you're in, in the jobs that you're in, in the circles that you're in, with the influence that you have, is it to pervert the ways of the Lord, to make his ways crooked so that they are self-serving for you and for me? Is that why we're here? Like Bar Jesus. Or are we here with the integrity of Paul, knowing, knowing that God's ways are straight, that they are right, that he is bringing glory to himself. This proverb says that we will be found out. Listen, Christian, the gospel is for you as much as it is for a non-believer. Run to Jesus, confess this to him, and hear from him that he forgives you. The Apostle Paul actually tells the Corinthians, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's a bold thing to say. Children, how many times do you hear your parents tell you this logic? Do as I say, not as I do. I want to close by saying, that's lame. We shouldn't be saying that to each other. We shouldn't be saying, do as I say, not as I do. We should pray that Jesus would give us the courage to follow the wisdom of this passage as we synthesize it, that we, God's people, are dependent on him for the preparation of the task that he has set us about, the direction of that task, as well as the action of that task. How do we 
begin to demonstrate this dependence, we run to him. We come to him and we say, Lord Jesus, center my life around what you're doing. No more in this new year around what I'm doing. Would you do this in us? Let's go to the table.